You know, when I was about 13 years old, I got introduced to a hobby called model rocketry. Model rocketry is uh, a, where you, you build rockets and you fly them and they come down by parachute so that you can fly them again. I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much, I carried on building and flying more complicated and more detailed, bigger, larger, faster rockets as I got better at it. The, the idea is to build a rocket of lightweight materials you, you, that, that you buy them in kits and you can have a cardboard tube and there's balsa wood fins and a balsa nose cone. You, you, you attach a parachute to the nose cone and you put the parachute into the tube and put the cone on and on, on the bottom is a, a single use engine and that engine is ignited by an electric current coming through a wire that's inserted into the engine and you know, on a launching pad it just takes off and it comes down by parachute, you try to catch it. You try to pick days where it's not too cloudy, where it's not too windy. I loved that as a hobby. And as I got into it, the rockets got bigger and the rockets got, for the, when the rockets got bigger you needed stronger engines and you can buy engines of different sizes and different strengths. So I was getting to a point where I was running out of, you, I couldn't get rockets any bigger than the ones I was building or, or, or engines any bigger. And so as I, I started to get bored and so I thought, hey, I know what I'll do. I'm going to build a small rocket, like one of those beginner type rockets, just, just a throwaway beginner type rocket, and put the largest engine I can buy into it which isn't really recommended because you usually put a small engine in a small rocket. Well, I didn't care, I was bored. And so my friends and I thought this was a great idea. So I built the rocket, I stuffed this large engine in it. We went out to the launch site outside the perimeter and we, we launched this thing. And my friends and I were pretty excited. It was like, we'd do a countdown, you know, we'd do, you know, the five, four, three, and then you push this button and the electric current and then you hear this fizz and the rocket takes off and it just goes up, up, up. And we watched it going up. And we even brought binoculars for this one because we knew it was going to go higher than anything we'd ever flown before. And it was a cloudless day. We watched it going higher and higher. It's just a rock. It was only about, you know, 12 to 15 inches tall. So it wasn't a tall rock. It was a small object. And we lost sight of it. Now, the rockets, the engines you can buy have different different time lapses on them. You can buy rockets where the, the, the accelerator, well, the, the fuel inside will run for anywhere from 5 to 12 seconds. So it could, and I, I obviously bought one that went for 12 seconds this time. And so for 12 seconds, that thing was just going higher and higher. And then there's a delay of anywhere from three to six seconds before a little charge will go off in the engine to pop the parachute out. Well, that should have happened about five seconds after it, it, it stopped accelerating upward. And then the parachute would have come out and then it would have floated down. And we never saw that rocket again. We lost sight of it, and we never saw it again. So you can imagine these guys out in the field, all just staring up, just, where did it go? Did anybody see it? And there's somebody with binoculars who'd been following it, but who literally lost sight of it using binoculars. We thought it hit the jet stream. 
We, maybe it did. We thought it was going to end up in some jet aircraft's engine somewhere. So today we're going to hear about another group of guys who were standing around, looking up, searching the sky. Last Sunday we began a new sermon series on a book in the Bible commonly called Acts. And I explained last Sunday why I'd prefer to call that book and this sermon series The Adventures of Acts. And I've subtitled that sermon series How Jesus Uses Ordinary People to Change the World. We've looked at the first statements made in The Adventures of Acts last Sunday, and I highlighted that this book is a continuing adventure. It's an adventure that's ongoing. Even though the book came to an end after 28 chapters, the adventure continues. And it is going on and on to this day. And we also talked about how it's a bigger adventure than any of Jesus' disciples ever imagined. They had no grid for this idea of going to the end of the earth with the gospel. But Jesus introduced this idea of a bigger adventure than they could have imagined. Going to the end of the earth. But not just bigger because it goes to the end of the earth. Bigger because it involves the salvation of the individual people immediately around us. Jesus knew that that too was big because there's no way you're going to see the salvation of people in your lives without God's help, without the help of the Holy Spirit, because that is big when someone gives their heart to God. And salvation is a major theme throughout the book of Acts. So I'm going to pick up where we left off last week by once again reading Jesus's final words to his disciples and then reading about as, as Will mentioned, the ascension of when these men ended up looking up into the sky, as I did so long ago. So let me read you from Acts chapter 1. You, you'll have a handout, or if you brought your Bible, you can look it up in your Bible. And let's read from Acts chapter 1, from verse 7 to verse 12. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now imagine that group of men just staring up into the sky, just standing around, staring up, searching for what happened to Jesus. And they were probably wondering, if you're trying to figure out what was in their minds, they were probably wondering, what is going on? This was something unprecedented. They had never seen anything like it before. Jesus just rose up and vanished into a cloud. Only mere moments beforehand, these same men had been asking Lord, is it at this time that you'll establish the kingdom? So obviously they were thinking about the kingdom being established now. Only moments, literally seconds 
before Jesus rose up into the sky. That was their mindset. Is it going to happen now? And Jesus just disappears. He just, he says, uh, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And by the way, see you later. I mean, it would have been confusing to them. This is more than a model rocket disappearing into the sky. This is a man they'd walked with and learned from for three wonderful years. Someone that they'd put all their hope in. Someone who they'd given up everything for. And now he's gone. Can you imagine? We've given up everything for this man. And where did he go? This passage is describing what has become known as the ascension. Jesus ascending to heaven. And what makes the ascension so significant is where Jesus ascended to. To the right hand of God the Father in heaven, which has huge significance. Eventually, it became clear to Jesus' disciples that that is where Jesus ascended to. Because as in February, in early February, we'll be looking at a passage in which Peter, one of Jesus' followers, said to a crowd, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So Peter eventually came to realize where Jesus had gone. Now we're going to look at two reasons why this is hugely significant, Jesus being at the right hand of God. Jesus ascending and being exalted in heaven. And I want to express my gratitude to a, an author named Timothy Keller who, who helped me to sort of become aware of these two significant reasons why the ascension is so important. The first reason of Jesus being exalted is significant for us all is because it's the ascension of Jesus or the ascended Jesus is personal. He is personally close to every one of his followers all the time. Timothy Keller has written, as long as the man Jesus existed in the world of space and time, he could only be at one spot at one moment. But at the ascension, Jesus leaves the space-time continuum and passes into the presence of his Father. As a result, at any, any time-space limitation to his work passes away. He's doing all the things he did before, but now after the ascension, he's doing them with access to anyone, in any place, and all at once. The ascension doesn't mean the loss of intimacy or of his leadership, or of his advocacy. It means the magnification and the infinite availability of all of these. You know, as I ponder this, Jesus, the ascended Jesus being personal, I think of Ecuador. We have friends from Ecuador here. We have several families in our church from Ecuador. And Ecuador has been in the news lately. Drug cartels have formed gangs who are literally terrorizing the people in Ecuador. And I contacted the families to see, are your families okay? All their families are okay, but some of their families have experienced trauma because of the, the violence and the, the chaos going on in Ecuador. But they're okay now. Now these are troubles that are very hard to grapple with when they're so far away and our families, loved ones are far away. People we care about are so far away. 
But Jesus isn't far away from them. When such troubles come, it means we can call out to God and he can give us peace as he personally dwells in our heart and as he personally draws near to the people we're praying for. I also know of two people in Gateway East from two other countries, far away across oceans, who've lost loved ones this week. Lost loved ones that they can't be there for the funeral. They can't be there among the family who will be at the funeral. And that's hard. That's hard when someone we care about is gone and the, the, all the people who loved and cherished the relationship with that person are gathering together and you can't be there among them. Well, Jesus is there among them. And Jesus can be with you. The person who's here who can't be there because Jesus is personal and he can be at all places at all time. And, and so this is the beauty of him being outside that space-time continuum that he can be with us all the time, no matter where we are, what we're going through, giving us peace in our hearts, no longer limited by geography. Around 400 AD, the church bishop and theologian named St. Augustine said, uh, he explained the ascension this way. You ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Oh, Jesus had to ascend to heaven and to be enthroned with God the Father before God would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. And he did. He did send that Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus departing doesn't result in Jesus being far away. He's with us by his spirit, even in the tough times, even when there's chaos and troubles going on far away. He can be with those we care about and those we pray for. The Holy Spirit who Jesus spoke of had told, when he told his disciples that the night before his crucifixion, he told them of the Holy Spirit. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. This is a promise. The Holy Spirit has been promised. And the last thing Jesus said before he ascended was to repeat that promise that the Holy Spirit is with you. And this is what makes the ascension so personal because Jesus isn't far away when he sends his Spirit to dwell with us. One theologian said Christ is ascended, but his abiding presence and energy fill the whole book of Acts. His presence at God, God's right hand means he is more effectually present with his people on earth, always, even to the end of the age. The, the, the ascension made it possible for Jesus to be near us, to be with us, to be helping us, to be strengthening us, to be encouraging us, to be loving us in such a personal way that we couldn't have experienced if he's still a man on this earth, just able to be in one place at one time. But we shouldn't think that it's only the Holy Spirit who's caring for us personally. We can say, oh, well, there we go. We've got the Holy Spirit. But, but I don't get it, Pastor Ken. You say that means Jesus isn't so far away. I mean, I mean he is far away. He's in heaven. And, and the Holy Spirit is his representative. But, but what about Jesus? Does he care? The Holy Spirit seems to care. Well, the Holy Spirit is representing the cares of Jesus. 
He reflects Jesus' heart. We shouldn't think that it's only the Holy Spirit who cares for us because the Bible tells us that Jesus himself, Jesus, the Son of God, who can think of all of us at the same time, is praying for us personally. When the Bible says he's praying for us, it doesn't mean he's praying for us as a massive crowd, a billion Christians or a billion, seven billion people. He's praying for us as individuals. He's God and capable of praying for each one of us individually, personally. Are you struggling with a sense that you've let Jesus down? Do you sometimes struggle that you're not measuring up, that you're, that you're just not, you don't feel good enough, you, that you're not pleasing to God? Well, I've struggled with thoughts like those. And it's not uncommon that I struggle with thoughts like those. And when those feelings come on strong, those, those voices of accusation, or probably more accurately, those voices of self-accusation, When they get loud, it helps me to remember a verse in the Bible that says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, meaning I'm justified and forgiven. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's praying for us. So when those accusations come, when you feel those accusations, remember, you know, remember this verse. In fact, it's helpful to memorize a verse like this where you can say, who's bringing, who's bringing any charge against me? Who's bringing any charge against God's elect? It's God who justified me. He died for me so I could be justified. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus came to bring. That Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. The word justified has been said. There's a little phrase they've used to describe what that means. Just as if I never sinned. That's what justified means. He doesn't see our sin anymore. It's been, Jesus has taken it upon himself and taken the punishment for it upon himself so that we can be forgiven. And so when we hear those accusations, we can say, it's God who justified me. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and who, more than that, who rose from the dead and who indeed is interceding for me. He's praying for me. He loves me. It reminded me as I was preparing the sermon of a quote I'd seen years ago by a a Scottish 19th century Presbyterian minister I wish I could say his name with a Scottish accent, Robert Murray McShane. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, if I were here in my bedroom and I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me in heaven. The fact that Jesus is in heaven doesn't make him distant because the Holy Spirit is with us and because Jesus, Jesus' prayers aren't affected by distance as he prays for you. And the second reason Jesus being exalted is significant is that the ascended Jesus is powerful. He's not just personal and relational. 
He's powerful. The Bible says that God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Don't miss that little word for. For the church. It's easy to to just miss that little phrase. But what it means is Jesus is exercising his authority at the God the Father's right hand for the benefit of us here in this church. And for every individual member of that church, of the church the globally. And he's exercising dominion in a way that helps us. We have examples of that. Some of you know this. I love replaying the history of Gateway East. Two years ago, in January 2022, we had nowhere for our food bank to move after selling our old building. We we just had nowhere. And we were knocking on doors. Kurt was even peeking in windows of buildings that were locked. And we were trying to find a place to meet. That food bank had been running on a weekly basis since 1992. So two years ago, in 2022, that was 20 years of operating, serving hundreds of people a month. 30 years? Thank you, Wendy. My math skills are poor. 30 years. So in January 2022, unbeknownst to me, a person I didn't know was praying and fasting. His name was Pastor Brian Weeb. He was the new pastor. He'd only been pastoring for about five months at River East Mennonite Church, and he was praying and fasting, and he felt stirred by the Lord as a new pastor in that place. Lord, how can we be more relevant to this community? How can we participate in in some local outreach in this neighborhood. This church has never done that before. I'm a new pastor here. How can we do that? He was praying in January 2022 about that. I had never met him, but in April of 2022, I thought I'd reach out to him and ask, could we use your building? Well, actually, I'd asked him in December, the month before, but they'd said no because it was on a Saturday and they couldn't give up their Saturdays. Um, for, for the food bank to be there on a weekly basis. So in April, I contacted him again, even though I'd still never known the guy, and asked him, what if we met on a Monday evening? Well, Brian felt my second call, my call, not the December in, uh, request, but the April request was an answer to his prayer in January. He'd been stirred to ask the Lord about outreach, and he checked with his board, they have two boards in that church, actually. And they checked both of those boards were unanimous, yes. And the congregation was unanimous, yes. In fact, I've told you this before. Some of you have heard this story. After the vote, when it was a unanimous yes, he had somebody come up to him after the vote and say, Pastor Brian, you're new here. You wouldn't know this. But we never have unanimous votes in this church. There's always people that are saying no to something. And yet it was unanimous. God made a way. God exercises dominion in a way that helps the church. Well, except Jesus wasn't done. As we started to move, we realized our freezer that we'd been using for 30 years, thank you, 
was rusted out. We could, it, was, it was an embarrassing looking freezer once we took all the stuff out of the bottom of it and saw the rust down there. And so we thought, oh, we can't use this. And then somebody donated a brand new freezer for our brand new location for the food bank. God has been good to us. Jesus is exercising dominion in heaven in a way that is it, makes him head over everything for the church. Jesus is powerful enough to make a way where there is no way. So if you are united to Jesus and part of his body, then that means that he has the power and authority to get things done for your good. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. But I just want to declare that over you, that he has the power and authority to get things done for your good. That's who he is. That's what he's doing in heaven. He's not just personal. He's powerful. He can get you a job when you need a job. He can take care of loved ones that you miss and that you long to be with, though you're far away. This is the God we serve. If you believe in the ascension, then it should be a comfort for you to know that Jesus cares enough about you to be personally praying for you and exercising his incomparably great power for you. That's who he is. So let's consider the scene. Some believe that Jesus ascending into heaven was the moment that he was exalted to God's right hand of God's throne. And I, as I consider the scene, I don't buy that. It doesn't make sense to me. The ascension was not when Jesus was exalted. Okay? Now bear with me because I'm going to explain to you in a minute why I'm talking about this at all. Luke, the writer of Acts, wrote in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, the very beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. But Luke had already told stories or shared stories with Theophilus, the same guy he's writing, the, he's writing the book of Acts with Theophilus. He wrote another book called the Gospel of Luke, Lucas, to, about Jesus' life on this earth to Theophilus. And in that book, he wrote about Jesus appearing and disappearing during those 40 days. Jesus would appear, and Jesus would disappear. Jesus would walk through a door and then suddenly vanish. He would, he would just vanish. Now, I want to ask a question. Where was Jesus between those comings and goings? Was he, was, he, was he just in limbo somewhere, in some vague between heaven and earth location that because he hadn't yet ascended to the Father and hadn't been exalted to God's right hand? Was that something yet to come? The, if the ascension is the same as the exaltation, that's what you'd have to believe. So, but I don't believe that. That just sounds weird. So Jesus, Luke provides us with some clues. Let's just look at some of those clues. During one of the appearances of Jesus that Luke had told Theophilus about, 
in the Gospel of Luke, he appears to two men who are walking down a road who are feeling sad and confused as they talk about the death of Jesus because they didn't realize that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So Jesus walks up to them, and he walks up to them in a way in which he disguises who he is. They don't recognize him, and he starts talking to them. And he asks them what they're talking about. And as they tell him, he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all, all, the pro- all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? The way Jesus explains that, it makes it sound like he'd already been glorified in heaven, even though he hadn't ascended yet. And the truth is, If you look at one of the early church hymns, there's a writer in the book of the Bible named Paul. He wrote a bunch of the books that are in this Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write them. And in one of those books, to to a church in a place called Philippi, they called them the Philippians, that's the name of the book, he uses a a hymn that they call a pre-Pauline hymn. It was an early church hymn that... Paul was quoting. And in that hymn, he celebrates Jesus, it celebrates Jesus dying and then immediately mentions Jesus being exalted in heaven. Listen, it says, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. It doesn't even mention the resurrection. It just goes straight to the exaltation. Theologian Kevin Giles writes that along with other New Testament writers, Luke can speak either of the exaltation as the immediate sequel to the cross without mentioning the resurrection or of the resurrection and the ascension as two steps in one movement. Anglican scholar David Peterson helpfully reminds us that the ascension was not the beginning of the heavenly exaltation. It was the ultimate confirmation of the status that had been his from the moment of his resurrection. He was exalted when he was resurrected. Now, why does any of this matter? Why am I getting into this technical stuff about when Jesus was exalted? Because Luke was the only writer who described the story of the ascension. Luke was the only writer who told about it, and he must have had a reason. What was his reason for including this story twice? Not once, but twice in his books. Once in the Gospel of Luke and once in the Adventures of Acts. If Luke knew that Jesus had already been exalted to heaven, which it seems he did by the way he wrote about it, before departing so dramatically at this 40-day mark, then if, if he wasn't telling this story to highlight his exaltation, what was he telling this story to highlight? What's the purpose of the story of Jesus' ascension? Well, that's what I'm going to end with. Certainly Jesus' departure in this scene represents something important, something final, a completion of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of what the Bible calls the last days. But there's more to it than that. These two men in white provide us with a clue. Most writers suggest that these two men were were angels sent to just gently rebuke the disciples who had been distracted and were just staring up into heaven, wondering what's going on. But think about it. The disciples were confused. 
They felt grief. They felt loss as they watched disappear into the, Jesus disappear into the clouds. And they may have been hoping, they may have been looking because they were hoping he would return. Surely he's just playing a trick on us here. Like, well, come on, he's got to be coming back. But that's why I'm inclined to agree with the Kenyan theologian, Paul Mumokisa, who believes that the two men must have been sent to comfort the disciples, not to rebuke them, but to comfort them. And he says the angels' words were of profound importance. They reassured them that they had nothing to worry about since Jesus was to come back again. And we know from Luke's shorter version of the ascension in the Gospel of Luke, that the disciples must have been encouraged because Luke describes them at that time as as he writes, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So they switched from that place of grief and confusion to a place of joy and praise. Now we can only wonder, how could they feel such joy after experiencing such loss? They just lost their Savior. Why were they so full of joy? Well, we need to remember that just before Jesus left, we're talking seconds here, you guys. Don't forget that this happened all in in, in quick succession. Just before Jesus left, he spoke of receiving the power of, of the Holy Spirit for the purpose, and Jesus stated this purpose for the purpose of telling other people about Jesus. And then just after Jesus left, the angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? He was reminding them that they could be occupied in a much better way if they remembered what Jesus had spoken. Surely those disciples disciples remembered Jesus' words. They just needed to be snapped out of their distraction and remember what he had said just a minute ago. Author John Stott, describes them gazing up into the sky when they had only just been commissioned to go out into the world. Don't look up. Look out. Look around you. Look at the people in your life. That's what Jesus wanted them to do. As I said last Sunday, the spread of salvation throughout the world is the central concern of the book of Acts. So Luke's purpose in telling this story would be to reinforce that central concern of the spread of salvation. He wanted us, our eye, to, us to get our eyes onto the world that Jesus had only just sent us into. That's why Luke is sharing the story. To say, these men were distracted and God wanted to get their eyes onto the people around them. Luke makes it clear that the detail, in all the details of this story, that Jesus' followers could only fulfill that mandate by Jesus being in heaven, by the sure promise of his return, and by the Holy Spirit being with us. And all of that is as true today as it was then. The only way we're going to reach our neighbors, our family members who don't know Christ, our workmates, the people around us, wherever we happen to be, is by Jesus being in heaven praying for us. The sure promise of his return, so we have a hope that we can share with others, and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. 
So as we go out into the world this week, the question will be, will we be so distracted that we're oblivious to the people God has put into our lives? And that God has promised us his spirit to help us to show them his love. He sent us and he's empowered us. So what's our posture? Is our posture one of distraction? Like, like just looking off in all directions like that? Or is our posture to be scanning the horizon of the harvest field God has put us in where people need Jesus? Jesus.